Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, Cyril uh, Regis, <laughs> MBA, born in Maripasula, French Guiana, which then was part of France, still is part of France, yeah, I think, yeah. on the 9th of February, 1958. Um, so you grew up on the northern part of South America, isn't it, really? What was life like, like growing up? Well, I was I was there for four years. Um, Do you remember anything of it? Not a lot. I remember uh, just the hot weather and uh, dancing in the rain. <laughs> you know, as as uh, as young kids, me and my, my brother and my sister over there. Uh, not a lot. Been that that sort of age. Uh, I can remember my dad having a great big hammock out there and, and the weather, banana trees, and just a sense of freedom. And your, your dad, I think, is is he is he Guyanese or is he from? A, no, he's from Saint Lucia. Right, uh, so he, he went. That's a, a, a tiny little and very beautiful island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there a few times and uh, got some family there. But he's uh, he was a fisherman, and he decided to go for uh, to to French Guiana to do gold, pan gold. Uh, he's a gold miner, a gold, gold mine. panner. Oh, wow. Yeah, panner. Yeah. So did he ever find any? Oh, yeah, he did. Because I mean, we, he actually made some gold rings and chains for us when we were younger. Incredible. And he gave it to us when we got older, 18, 19, 20, 21. So he left French uh, Saint Lucia, went to French Guiana, and uh, met my mum. He's 34. Met my mum. Mum was 17, 18. A little village, Mary Pasula, uh, five, six hundred people. Got together, had three kids there. Um, and my, myself, uh, older brother Imbert, who's sadly passed away this year. Really, I'm yeah, sorry to hear 56, that. Yeah, 56, yeah. My elder sister, Neela, uh, she's the oldest. She had three three kids. One of them is Jason Roberts. The, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, absolutely. The other two are real people as well, I presume. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, Jason's, uh, her, her son has uh, done a great, uh, great job as a great footballer and a, and uh, an advocate for all things. Not, not, not as great a footballer as, he, as, as his uncle, <laughs> if you don't mind me well, saying. I, I always tell him as well he's not yeah, as great. And, he, and it's true, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, you, so you go to St. Lucia for a year, and then the family emigrates en masse. Um, en masse or in bits no, and pieces? In because bits and pieces. Uh, we were hearing from Tessa Sanderson a couple of weeks ago on My Sporting Life, and as is typical of people coming from the Caribbean, the whole family can't afford to come, so they come in bits and pieces. That's right. So my dad left Saint, uh, French Guiana. He went straight to, to England. Uh, myself, uh, my mum and dad, uh, no, sorry, my brother and my sister went to French to Saint Lucia. We stayed there for a year, uh, and we came over. Me, me and my brother and my mum came over by boat. Uh, the boat wow. was Ascania. I think we logged off in uh, in um, Southampton, took the train up mm-hmm. to Waterloo, picked up with my dad. And uh, my sister stayed behind in in um, in Saint Lucia for a year or so. She didn't come over till she was sixteen. I was five. 
my brother was seven, came over here, and we lived in one room on Portobello Road. Incredible. Okay, so um, you were you were five or six when you come over here. So do you was it such a shock, or do you not really remember what life was like before you got to England to have to have that shock, culture well, I, shock? All I can remember is uh, being in one room and the rain. It was cold. I think we came in February, so you can imagine coming from a, a warm climate in the yeah. French Guiana as a young kid. Why, why didn't they, Why didn't you come in the summer? Give yourself oh, a chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that mum and dad. Yeah. But uh, that's the way it was. And I could just remember the rain falling uh, for, for hours and hours, and then it was cold. It was freezing, uh, and living in one room was, and you couldn't go out and that sort of thing. So it was uh, for a five-year-old, five, five and a seven-year-old. It, it was pretty tough. I mean, you also had some troubles. Um with uh, uh, with housing at that time, I mean, various things, falling out with landlords, and I think you end up all end up in a hostel at one stage. That that's right? right, that's right. Well, you know, if you imagine, you know, one room with, with, with four of us, then we progressed to uh, two rooms with seven of us. My mum and dad had uh, another couple of kids, and we brought my eldest sister, Neela, over. So it was, uh, we had a, a shared toilet and bathroom and a shared uh, oven on a landing with another family and we was upstairs and the landlord was downstairs and with five kids all the noise we got turfed out uh we went into uh, dartmouth road a hostel in dartmouth road uh wow. in in wilsdon uh me my mom my brother uh stayed there my sister went to the girls home my dad stayed in lambert grove with his with his, with his brother uh we then moved uh, my mum went to uh to the east end to the salvation army in the east end wow uh, with my younger brother, my oldest sister, my sister stayed in the home. My brother, my mum, my dad stayed with his brother, and me and my younger brother went to order shop in a convent in order shop. We lived in the convent in order shop for maybe nine months, ten months. And did you all go back together again? We did. Oh. Uh, we all got back together again. We had a two up, two down, toilet outside, no bath, in Stonebridge, Barry Road in Stonebridge, uh, before the the flats were built. So we all got back together finally, and that was great. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, as, as a young kid, it was it was good times because you don't understand what your parents are going through. No, it must of course have been you don't. Torturous, my mum and dad looking back on things. Uh, I've never had a bath. Uh, we used to go down to Paddington, uh, Penny Steps bath to a bath every every ten days uh, for a proper bath. I'm I've laughing, all... but it's not funny, is it? I mean, no, it's, it's, that's it's, life. There's, there's, yeah, there, no, no, there is no glamour in poverty. But though, if you're brought up in working class circumstances, um, you, 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 it's only when you're thirty you think. My God, my mother and father had to do all that, you know. Exactly. So t- you do settle in in northwest London to give it its give its proper yeah. uh, geography. Um, tell us about your schooling, about your education, and how you got into sport, and, and tell us about the schools you went to. I went my first school. I went to uh, Kensal Rise, Kensal Rise Primary School, and uh, how was yeah, that? That was good. That was good. It was those sort of days, you know, sixties uh, where uh, summer holidays your mum and dad kicked you out of the house you know go down Queen's Park play all day yeah and I used to play football and, and, and there used to be a warden there we used to pack in is it just me bottles. or did those summers seem to be there was never any oh, rain it was brilliant. three months of continual sunshine and you used to stay out all day didn't you mum and dad used to say come back out when it started to get a bit darker yeah. there was a lot of freedom around just go down a park play on the streets and so I went to uh, Kensal Rice School uh, had a great teacher who taught us about cricket and, and football uh, went there uh, till I was 11. Then we moved uh, into Stonebridge. And then I went to Carnell Hinsley Secondary School. It's uh, Catholic a Catholic school. school yeah. yeah, all boys. Yeah. All boys. Had a great team. Yeah, well, the, people forget, I think, and again, I'm back, back into my own experience here, that there are the English Schools Cup has a separate and parallel competition, the England Catholic Schools Cup. And very, very, you know, teams from Manchester, Liverpool, North London, 
Um, they're a very high standard and, and people took great care of it. Were you always going to be an athlete, uh, sir? I mean, you're, here we are now, you're in your mid-50s and you are a very fit and muscular man. I'm saying next to on the radio, <laughs> people can't see you. Um, were you always athletic? Oh, always, yeah. My, my father, I think I'll take me, I mean, my brothers are big as well, but my father's very muscular, very muscular. And uh, I've always been sporty, whether it's uh, cricket or athletics, uh, but it wasn't until uh, I was 12, 13 uh, in my secondary school that I really found the love for, for, for football. I have to say, you're not the most muscular man called Regis I've ever met. <laughs> John's a muscular. I, t- I take it you're related to John Regis. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a cousin of mine yeah. somewhere. He is muscular. He came in and did this programme, and man, I've never, he's a cubic human being. Yeah, that is something to say. His chest is unreal. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Did you. Um, did you enjoy school work for other than sports? Did you do all right at the, at the yeah, academic stuff? Average. Yeah. yeah, average. I mean, it's typical. But did you try? Because most footballers tell no. me they just packed it in. No, no. <laughs> no, I didn't pack it in. I didn't try as hard. I mean, my, my father's philosophy is he was a labourer and he wanted us to get a trade. All I could hear for, for years and years and years, get a trade, get a trade, get a trade. And so we just focused you, on getting a trade. And you did. You became I did. an electrician. I left school at 16. I got a job with Duncan Watson, the apprentice electrician. I that I done that for three years, so I'm a fully qualified electrician. And could so. you could you change a socket point now well, if I asked a, you to? It's been a few years. Because <laughs> uh, because uh, I've got to tell you, the people who talk sport, they've taken a fortnight. So uh, if yeah. I get if anything goes wrong, I'll be looking to you. Um, and you of course you were playing your Sunday morning football for for Ryder Brent Valley um, in the mid 70s. And we're going to have a break now. And uh, when we come back, we'll be because this is not a story of a man who suddenly arrives at Manchester United and, and is a star player. You're one of those who came through the lower league system and it's an inspiration, I think, for many many. people players should make the point of course in the early parts of your life having come from a french speaking speaking part of the world you had a different name you were gilbert weren't you gilbert what happened to gilbert cyril well it's a quick uh, long story (laughs) short well in in french guiana you get three names you get a name which your parents give you which is gilbert yeah the name under the saint was born now was just saint cyril and regis so in maripasula you had to be registered in the main town which was cayenne yeah. So uh, a cousin of my dad was going to Cayenne. He said, register the boy. And so uh, the reality was, by the time he got to Cayenne, he forgot my name. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so all he put down was Saul Regis. So um, even I got back home to French Guiana now. My grandmother called me Gilbert. Absolutely. But when I came over here, my mum didn't want a confusion. So she said, well, just call him Cyril. And I know Cyril was supposed to be getting on. There's an awful lot to talk about in, in this <laughs> section. But, um, you know, you were born, I say, French Guiana is still part of France. They have the Euro there. And it, for whatever reason, the 300,000 people who live there choose to still be part of, you know, the, the, the French mother country, if you like. Um, you don't sound very French. You're not a very French person these days, are you? You're very no, British, I've, I think. I've forgotten it all. I'm, I'm British. Yeah. yeah, yeah I'm British, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just, I'm just, I, can't, I, can't, I just cannot see you um, uh, eat, eating the snails and pulling on that blue shirt. I just, I'm trying to, but I can't see it <laughs> Listen, very I nearly, easily. I nearly went to play with well, France in 1977. About, absolutely. Well, before that, in 1975, um, you know, say you're, a, you're an electrician um, and you join uh, Mosley Football Club in the, I think, the, the, the Athenian it, League, wasn't it? Yeah, um, in, in Surrey. Um, did you have aspirations to become a professional footballer, sir? Or were you one of those who thought, I'm, I'm, I'm probably better than this? No, not really. It was I just loved playing football. Uh, I played with the Gattins at uh, a, 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 a Sunday club called Oxford and Kilburn down, right. down in Melbourne. And we just, I just loved playing football and uh, played for the school, played for the borough and played for Ryder Brent Valley. Uh, I was still working as an electrician, uh, doing blade day release in, uh, in college, uh, block release in college and going to building site and playing Sunday mornings. Uh, until, you know, John Sullivan uh, spotted us playing and invited three of us to come and have trials at Mosley. 
And uh, you, you, you talk about John Sullivan. Um, he's a guy I know coming out of the music industry. He was an agent, a manager, a record producer. And I'm delighted to say we can actually uh, go back to the man who, if you like, discovered um, oh, Cyril Regis. Hello, John. Hello, it's uh, Danny. Welcome, welcome aboard, uh, John. Uh, tell, tell us about the day you first saw Cyril Regis playing. Uh, I had a call from a guy called Bert Fiddler who said there was a player, a couple of players from Regent's Park, and what the one recommended wasn't Cyril. I went to watch the match, <laughs> saw this guy. He was completely ready-made. I've never seen it before or since, and you just don't see that. He was... The way he received the ball, the way he kicked, and he's playing with kids. People said to me, "How could you discover a player playing with children?" I said, "You have it, or you don't." I mean, my only way to prove that to you is to say, like Ronnie Allen, he paid five grand out of his own pocket to convince his club to sign the boy. You have to, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and then from there, I took, that was on a Sunday, uh, Danny and. Uh, in midweek, we used to have the London Floodlight League, and you could sign a player five minutes before kickoff. Right. <laughs> and I put him in at Tooting and Mitcham, and the guy was an absolute star. Scored a couple of goals, um, and my player said to me, "Well, I, my coach didn't want me to play. He couldn't believe I was doing such a thing." But you see, that would be the same as. Ronnie Allen would have sworn if this guy had good players around him, he's going to do the business, and that's exactly why I think Ronnie Allen signed him. What do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was great fun. I mean, thank hi John. How are you doing? Hello, uh, sir. It was, it was great days. I mean, coming off the building site, you picking me up, driving driving me down to Mosley. Presumably in a pretty flash motor. Oh yeah, the, a, a Pontiac Firebird, wow. a gold one. I mean, I mean, I, was, I said, come back there. I should be sleeping on the car. Johnny's go flying up, up 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 to Stonebridge, drop me off, go home. I said, get home at uh, one, two o'clock, and get up at six and go back in the building site. And John looked after me. Well, John, you, you uh, it was, it's great to talk to you because uh, it's fair to say you have you did discover an absolute superstar. Uh, well done. Thank you very much for joining us. Danny, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. John, John Sullivan, the former manager of, of uh, Mosley, who discovered uh, Cyril Regis, who got 27 goals from Mosley in 1975. In 76, you moved up a level to Hayes in the Isthmian League, very much your local team, really, if you're from that yeah, part of the world. Yeah, Hayes Middlesex, you know, just around the corner from uh, actually where I was uh, uh, studying. That was at uh, um, Norfolk Park. Um, at college down there I was studying my electrician exams down there so uh, it was very close yeah and uh, it, we'll, we'll, we'll skip straight on to May of 1977 where West Bromwich Albion come in for you I mean that's all about out of the blue I mean you're, 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 you know, you're a good player at the lower leagues but this is the, this is a team you know one of the top teams in England they it come was, in it and was. there's a legend isn't it Ronnie Allen who was the coach rather than the manager Johnny Giles no, it was, was, a, it was a chief scout he's a chief scout he a chief and scout. he said he would buy you with his own money if necessary he was so convinced yeah, yeah. that was that was I mean I don't, I don't know how I think this don't know how truthful that is but well, that's, no, that's, that's what comes out of it doesn't sound very likely that does was, it that was comes out of it but uh, I was there for a whole year and there was always I was, you know apparently Millwall wanted me Gordon Jago wanted to buy me but a, but the director says no nah, I'm not quite right there's always scouts coming around Arsenal and Reading and different people but it wasn't until Ronnie Allen came down and persuaded the Albion to buy me that uh, they all kicked off up till then 
never had a trial, never had anything with a professional football club. It's interesting that, um, you know, I know that in a pre-season friendly with Hayes, you played against a side, I can't remember which one it was now, with Alan Devonshire in it. These were the days... Southall. Southall. Yeah. These are the days when sort of two of you end up in the That's England right. squad, you know. I mean, they were still finding players um, out of the lower leagues who would come through and be good enough to play for England. Well, that's right. I played, when I went to Hayes that, that first year, we played a pre-season game against Southall and Alan Devonshire. He's kicked past us. You could tell he'd be a great player. Yeah. And he went to West Ham that year. And uh, yeah. I stayed and went on to, uh, to to Hayes for a whole year, stayed there. And how much excitement was there when you went to West Bromwich Albion? What, it was scary. How it happened to it you? Was, well, I just got to, got to shout. I've just passed my exams in May 77 as a fully qualified electrician, which was great for my dad because he always wanted us to have a trade. And I knew that... Um, you know, if, if it didn't happen, I've always got something to fall, by, fall back on. I was still laughing at the, at the prospect <laughs> of you stripping down a sub power station, you know. Well, I've done it all. It's installation. <laughs> so uh, when uh, West Brom came in, and my dad said, you know, do what you want, son, as so long you've got, you know, you've got something else to fall back on to just in case it doesn't happen. And I went up there. I went up there with the, the then manager, uh, Bobby Ross, uh, and he negotiated a contract for me. I got £60 a week, £30 appearance, signed a year's contract, and. Uh, Moved up to Smethwick. What did you make of the West Midlands when you first got there? I was bored. I mean, if you imagine you're talking about um, doing an eight, ten hour on a building site, all of a sudden you're playing football, you get there at 10 o'clock, you start at a half 10, come 12, half 12, it's all finished. I was bored, you know, because you used to work until six, seven o'clock at night. So it was uh, a lot of getting used to. Plus, training every day was, was, was very physical on the body. That took me some time to get uh, used to. Well, you know, you, you, you got a flying start at West Brom. I mean, your career at West Bromwich Albion may have had some problems in the latter stage of it, but the start of it, you, were, you scored on your, two goals in your debut in the League Cup tie against Rotherham. Um, that was the 31st of August, 1977. Uh, a goal on your league debut against Borough, a winning goal. Um, and also at this time, um, I think this is a, as a, you know, you're a, an 18-year-old, I think. Uh, 19. 19. And you meet Laurie Cunningham, um, the... Fantastic and later Real Madrid and England winger. Yeah. I know played a big part in your life. Tell us about about that. Yeah, well, you know, back in those days, you never mixed too much with uh, the first team. Yeah, I was in reserves, and uh, I remember really meeting Laurie on my debut uh, in the dressing room. We had Willie Johnson. He had a fag in the corner, and the fag, and the television. Everybody getting changed, and I'm getting stripped. I don't even know my teammates, uh, and I'm going out there in front of fifteen thousand people. The most I've ever played in front of 500, and there's Laurie Cunningham here. He said, "All the best, well done. Uh, all the best, all the boys are encouraging me." And that was the first time. And after that, we we got on really, really well. But funny enough, after that game, uh, after that game, we won four two, four nil against Rotherham. Me, Laurie Cunningham, and uh, Cantello, and a few other boys went to the Hawthorns pub. Right. I didn't get out of it at the three in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, was, so you're learning about I'm professional learning. football yeah, in the is, 70s this, now, aren't this you? This is yeah. professional football in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, if well, it's good enough for them, it's good enough yeah, for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about the drinking culture as we go on. <laughs> we should also talk about, because I, I know it's going to come up because of the, the, the yourself, Laurie and Brendan Batson in that West Bromwich Albion team. Um, you are part of the generation. You may tell me there were others before you, but there were, you're part of a generation of black players who um, now, you know, we, we, you don't even blink. But... Did, how difficult was it coming through to you? I mean, I know you, you, you faced some racial abuse, for instance, at Newcastle, but was that as common as people would say now? What was the situation? Oh, it, was, it, was, it was unbelievable. Seriously? Uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. really was. I mean, to paint the picture, you had the first division. There was only four black players playing in the first division at a time. Uh, three of us at West Brom, uh, yep. Laurie Cullum, myself and Brendan Batson. Yep. And Viv Anderson at Forest. So you can imagine uh, three of us 
you know, going to teams like Newcastle, West Ham, Chelsea, when had no black guys, and there was a kind of uh, recruitment of of uh, hooligans and far right people from the national front of these football clubs, and so the amount of stick we used to get uh, was not, it wasn't just one or two people. No. We're talking of five to ten thousand people shouting racist abuse at us. Uh, it was it was absolutely horrendous. Throwing bananas on the pitch, uh, monkey chants every time we got the ball, and this went on for years. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I think. What we done with it? It got you angry, but you internalise that anger and use it as motivation. It's funny. I, 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 and I got, I've got to say this because you must speak as you find it because it's not aimed at me. I don't remember it at Tottenham in the seventies and eighties. Now, mm. whether it was there, you can tell me about why well, like, it. Yeah, maybe no, t- it, Tottenham used to sing this song. Who's that up a tree? Big really? Cyril. See, now, you I can't don't, remember. No, that. I don't oh, remember yeah, it. No, yeah. I must have been stood in the wrong part of the ground. You but, must have uh, had a few beers. But, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that wouldn't. Be, not, well, yeah, yeah, a few. That, that's I can, fair. Re- I can remember that. Absolutely. At no, I'm asking you because I want to. I want to make sure my own memory isn't playing tricks on yeah. me. So it doesn't matter whether it's in an. You know, Tottenham was the ground is in a predominantly black area. You know, it doesn't seem. It doesn't matter. It was there. We'll talk about this more when we talk to Brendan later in the show. Um, because I, I, and of course later on we'll talk about your your your, uh, your nephew who uh, Jason Roberts who has been at the forefront of the recent um, issue, issues involving racism between crowds and players. Um, which and of course very quickly your manager um, at West Bromwich Albion by the 78 Johnny Giles goes and uh, eventually Ron Atkinson turns up and starts to build a great team. <laughs> the first sign of the great team was losing a we got to semi final the FA Cup um, and lost to Ipswich. And that first big disappointment of your career, really, is it? Very big. I mean, you don't realise what football means to the community until you get close to a cup. And don't forget, the FA Cup was was huge in our day. You know, you only played... There's only three ways you ever played at Wembley, and everybody wanted to play at Wembley. It was iconic. England England National, FA Cup, League Cup. Yeah. If you ever wanted that, you never got to play for Wembley. So it was, it was deep in our hearts to play at Wembley and to, uh, to be favourites against Ipswich... Uh, down at, uh, at Highbury and losing 3-1 was painful. The coach on the way back was... And we had a very, very good side. You beat uh, Manchester United on the way and you'd beaten uh, Derby, Nottingham Forest. Forest were a great yeah. team at the time. But we just never performed on the day. We just never performed. I mean, uh, I, there was a story that Big Ron went up to Wembley and he'd done a film set and and Bobby Robson just used that as uh, as motivation. He says, look at him there. You think they've won it already. And we're underdogs. Uh, get out there, show what you got. And we lose 3-1. Three, three, three hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So after that amazingly successful first season at West Bromwich Albion, even when you arrived fully formed in professional football, despite losing that uh, that semi-final, and there was talk about you moving on, possibly, to St Etienne. How serious was that? Well, very, very serious. They were a top team, incidentally, at the time. It was with Platini yeah. and Trezar and yeah. Rochto. They had a very good they side. Very, they came very close to winning the European Cup, didn't they? That's, that's right. Yeah, and they had lovely green shirts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened was, uh, because I come from French Guiana, um, I could have dual nationality. And be, be, you, Sorry, this is a stupid question. You can still speak French, can you? No. You must have spoke French when <laughs> not, you were a kid, a yeah? A child. In fact, it was a broken French. It was, oh, was uh, it Patois. Kind of Patois, was it, yeah? Okay. It was Patois. Um, uh, so yeah. I don't I don't so at the time I um, they saw that I was French and they thought well if I can get him into Saint uh, Etienne uh, later on he could play for France uh, yeah but uh, I decided to stay in England okay hang on and do you ever regret that do you ever think you could have been a French footballer French international and all that I don't regret it because I'd only been in the game one year uh, I was only 20. Uh, there was, uh, they came in for me for £750,000, which was enormous uh, amount of money at the time. But I just thought, well, if I'd be one year in the game, uh, I could go another time. Plus, we had a very good side at West Brom. It wasn't as if we were a poor side. We had Willie Johnson, Tony Brown, uh, Brian Robson. We had a great side. So the young was Brian okay. Robson, wow. Yeah, he was a, you know, he was a phenomenal uh, I mean, player. I mean, Derek Statham. We should, yeah, a great fullback. We should talk about, I mean, we'll talk about uh, your, your strike partner, Ali Brown. But Tony yeah. Brown was a central midfielder, and I can't tell the kids this enough these days, who used to get 20 to 25 goals a season from midfield, as well as being a tackle and pass. A kind of mixture of Paul Scholes and Frank Lampard, Lampard I guess. Yeah. Um, and he got one England cap. I mean, it's extraordinary. He, he is Mr Albion. I mean, been there for 20 years. Uh, he, he's an absolute legend for West Brom. A great guy, a real professional footballer, a real model professional. Uh, his goal-scoring exploits from midfield is legendary uh, with uh, Jeff Astle, all the players he's played in. Uh, what a fantastic player. And you're right, he is the modern-day Skulls. And Lampard, 20 goals from midfield. Used to run past me. He's doing my running, he keeps telling me. Okay. Well, uh, his ability to get in the box uh, when the ball's wide and scoring goals from all angles is, is phenomenal. Okay, well, we, we talked about it briefly. Westbrook, I mean, a, a very young Ron Atkinson comes to the club and it starts to build around those players a fantastic squad of players. Yourself and Laurie Cunningham were already there. And Brendan Batson, these, these days are so familiar to us because of his work mm. at the PFA, of course comes and uh, so that you're the first team top flight team in England as you said with three black players who are regular in the team mm. did you realize at the time how significant that was no no not not at all uh, to be quite just a bit of history uh, Johnny Giles laid the foundation for the Albion style of play and Ronnie and Ronnie Allen built on it and Big Ron added to it but the significance of three of us there you know it's hard enough to be a professional footballer staying aside you know, you've got yeah. players like um, you know, um, Ali Brown, 
David Cross and a few other strikers, they want your place. So your focus is to stay in the side. If you didn't perform, didn't play well, at the side. Well, I'm delighted to say we can be, we're joined on the line now by your former teammate, as I say, very much uh, somebody who uh, we're very familiar with here at uh, TalkSport, particularly through his uh, work over the years with the PFA. I'm delighted to say we're joined by Brendan Batson. Hi, Brendan. Afternoon, Danny. Hi, Hi Brendan. Cheryl. How you doing, pal? You all right? I'm not bad, mate. Watching the snow come down here in Birmingham at the moment. Oh, there's nothing down here, mate. It's clear in London. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want, to, you, want to, you want to get away from Birmingham, Brendan. I'll be, be honest. Uh, I'm, I'm, going out, I'm going out of snow and rock and buying some extra skis, mate. Yeah. Brendan, we, 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 we may talk about this thing where Ron uh, de- de- declared the three of you, you, Laurie and uh, Cyril, the three degrees. I don't know how politically correct that is even any, anymore. I've got to be honest. You've heard um, it a few uh, times. After, after, the, after the, uh, the, the singing trio of the same name. But first of all, Brendan, mm. let's... Before we talk about that, I think it's more important to remember, or as important to remember, that uh, West Bromwich Albion was a great football team at the time, and, and then the, the, the social significance of what they were doing sometimes over, overlaps the fact that there was a bloody great football team. That's right, and we were the, the sadness of it that we were that team for one year because at the end of that season, seventy-eight, seventy-nine, we lost uh, Lenny Cantilla, who was a terrific part of that team, yeah. and also Laurie Cunningham to. Um, you know, Real Madrid. Yeah. So people talk about it. I mean, I only played with Laurie for one, one season a bit, maybe 15 months. Uh, but what a player. But that team, sadly, you know, broke up after really one season and um, never really got built upon um, over the years because we lost um, uh, both um, Brian Robson and Remy Moses a couple of years later when we went to um, Man United. I mean, uh, just 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 to say that it, I think in, in, I was reading in some part of Cyril's book that 78, 79... When you actually finished, I think third, uh, yeah. a point behind Nottingham Forest and nine behind Liverpool, eventual champions. Um, Cyril believes that you should have won the title that year. Is that a view you share, Brendan? Well, there's a lot of ifs and buts around that. I mean, for <laughs> up until Christmas, up until we had a big freeze when we didn't play for six weeks, uh, we were playing some fantastic stuff. Um, not just as um, a team, but individually, our performances were very, very good. And then we had a big freeze, um, didn't play for six weeks, managed to get out to, I think it was Guernsey. Uh, for a, one, a couple of games on, on grass against Birmingham. And then our, right, yeah. our next game back was um, Liverpool away. We lost 2-1. And unfortunately, because of the glut of games come in, um, we never really recaptured that consistency. We still had good performances, but didn't really recapture that consistency of um, the previous uh, few, well, good few months, first half of the season. My, my, and we, only need, we only needed one point, didn't we, Cyril, from um, the last two games to finish runners-up. That's right. We, I remember we, couldn't, we, we couldn't even manage that. Yeah, we went to Bristol, didn't we? Uh, I remember play, yeah. playing the Bristol, We were and my legs, you thought you was running yeah. and sprinting, but our legs were hanging off one um, and we lost yeah. 1-0. Well, and uh, I know, think Villa done us a favour, didn't they? They beat, I don't know who they beat, they done us a favour and we just didn't capitalise on it Just to remind yeah. you that the excellent group of players you had have been uh, somehow Ron Atkinson have worked in um, and certainly entertainment value and you, you both as you say there you were top of the league on in, in January 1979 um, and you got there by beating on the last day or December 30th of the, in, the, in the run up to the new year you'd gone to Old Trafford um, and won by five goals to three yeah there was a time then when people like me perhaps untrained eyes thought wow West Bromwich Albion are going to be champions of England as you say the games the games killed you both and uh, 
and eventually Liverpool won the title. But that I must, team... I must tell you, Dan, I must tell yeah. you, Danny, that Cyril had, Cyril had 20 chances in that game. <laughs> yeah, that was the only <laughs> one he took, yeah. <laughs> that, like, Gary Bain was out his skin. He played out of his skin, Hang Gary on, Bain. by, by definition, you're saying then, Brent, you could have got 10 <laughs> at Old Trafford, oh, yeah. yeah? Easily, easily. He could have had, he could have had at least seven. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, I mean... That was a great goal. I mean, and it was a great team, too, and uh, people of a certain vintage look back on it with great fondness. But there is also... Mm. Um, as say a social significance to it that uh, it was um, perhaps odd or perhaps brilliant I'm not sure that uh, uh, the arrival of numbers of black players in the top level of English football in fact they all happened at one club really I mean we, we talked about about there were only four players in the top level um, how important was it that you and Laurie and Cyril all came through together and and, and, and led to a path where I hope I hope that the the, the colour of people's skin despite recent events in the Premier League um, has become absolutely as irrelevant as the colour of their eyes that's very true. I mean, and we should we should applaud what's gone on and acknowledge the, the improvements around the game since black players came to the fore, particularly in the um, early 70s, that explosion in the, in the late 70s. Uh, and I think I heard Cyril mention earlier, you know, we were more concentrating on, you know, retaining our form, making sure we're in the team. I think the social significance really passed us by. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every now and again, it touched, it touched us because, I mean, there were incidents, obviously, that were very unpleasant, going to ground, seeing national front you know, trying to recruit outside grounds, the authorities do nothing about it. Having your um, nearest and dearest, you know, your, your parents, your, your wives, your girlfriends, not really wanted to come to the games because of the abuse that we were getting on the field. But, you know, it's a, it's a credit to the players, particularly of our generation, our era, yeah. that despite all that, they kept on coming forward in, in increasing numbers. And I think the thing around the West Brom is that with all the publicity we had, which, you know, at times were in reflection, maybe went on too long and centred on the three of us, Laurie, Cyril, and myself, was that we were a very, very good team. Yeah. And without that, we wouldn't have had that sort of publicity. And, um, you know, our individual performances made people sit up and, you know, you know Cyril was getting a, a cap and Laurie was there or thereabouts. And we, we had tremendous players coming through. Derek Staden, who was one of the purest footballers I've ever played with. And uh, Brian Robson, who uh, was going to go on and dominate the game in midfield for many, many years. And look what he's done for Man United in England. Well, listen, uh, thank you very much indeed for those uh, recollections about that brilliant West Bromwich Albion team of 78, 79. Thank you very much there to Brendan Batson. Thanks, Brendan. Good to see you, mate. Good good to listen to you. Cheers, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. That's Brendan. Of course, always good to, to hear from him. Um, before I come on to the fact that you were Young Player of the Year that year as well, um, just the last question about Ron Atkinson. Um, insofar as we heard about all the publicity he made of it, he may have made too much of it. Of course, in recent times, he's had publicity of an altogether other kind. But I know that you've been in touch with Ron uh, since, and uh, I know that if you believed he was a racist after what, it, what happened to him, that that wouldn't have happened. You just wouldn't have allowed that in your life. So you clearly don't believe that that's the case. Well, he's clearly made a racist comment yeah. uh, on, on, uh, on radio. Uh, he's showed a lot of remorse about it. I've known him for well over, since I was 19, loads, loads of years. Uh, I've had great fun. He's still great company. He came to my book launch. We're still great friends. Uh, he's very remorse, remorseful and sorry for what, what he says. Uh, as human beings, we, we are. Uh, he's not a racist. Uh, he's a very good friend of mine. And, um, you know, he should be back on television, to be okay. quite fair. Okay. Uh, we forgive him. We'll get on with it. Uh, none of one's perfect. Uh, but he's shown remorse and he's sorry about it. Okay, well, listen, thank you very much indeed for that. And I should make the point you were the uh, Young Player of the Year in 1979. Can you remember who you're up against for the award? Laurie Cunningham. It was quite, Laurie? Yeah, it was Laurie and a few others. I think Glenn Hoddle and a few others. But it was oh, hardly... just, just Glenn Hoddle and Laurie Cunningham, then, yeah? <laughs> it was quite embarrassing, really, because on the clips uh, showing me scoring goals, it was always 
Laurie Cullum going down the wings, keeping past two or three, slipping me and getting across, and I'm scoring. So I thought it was Laurie, but it ended up to be me. So uh, after one year in the game, winning the Young Players a Year by your fellow fellow footballers was, uh, you know, it's a massive highlight. You know, getting that endorsement from your fellow players. Cyril, um, we we heard from Brendan Batson there that that great team of West Bromwich Albion had in '79, they were still a very powerful club and they could buy players and all the rest. But when Laurie Cunningham your mate Laurie went to Real Madrid, bless him. Um, was that and, and Brian Robson went to Manchester United a little later. A later yeah. um, was that the kind of decline of that West Bromwich Albion well, yeah, team? One hundred percent. Two uh, two great players left. Uh, Lincoln Tello, he had formed a fantastic relationship with Brian Robson in midfield. Me and Laurie up front. Although I had an equally good uh, relationship with uh, Ali Brown. Up front. Brown yeah. yeah, Ali Brown. And we had the two defenders at the back, uh, Wyle and Robertson. They were fantastic. The t- well, 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 there may have been individually harder <laughs> defenders in the English League, but were they the hardest pair of defenders that any club has ever had? Were uh, uh, John, John Wyle and um, what was uh, it? Ali Alistair Robertson. Yeah, they and were. Yeah, Derek they, Stay, they, they, were, were, they, were, they were. They were. They were solid. Guys. They, they were, were solid. Guys. They were solid. They were solid. And so uh, Laurie and Len and Len went. And we brought in uh, Gary, uh, Gary, Gary Owen and, and Peter Barnes. Great players in themselves, yeah. but what missed was the chemistry. Yeah. The chemistry that we had. It's about teams, isn't it? As always, rather than just players. Good players and the chemistry that uh, Lincoln Teller had with Brian Robson, me and Laurie, it just, just fizzled out. And two years, three years later... Uh, Brian went and Remy Mosut went and it was downhill from there. I mean, you, you, you will talk about, uh, you, you were still playing very well and you had a great reputation, you were scoring great goals. How hard was it for players at a club like West Bromwich Albion, do you think, to get into the England squad? Very hard. I mean, don't forget, <laughs> Liverpool dominate everywhere. Yeah. Liverpool, Arsenal, and um, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, the press was London, yeah. Liverpool and Manchester. And we weren't getting the headlines. Um, I mean, so to speak, someone like uh, Tony Brown, who scored 200 goals for midfield for West Brom, only got one cap. One cap, yeah. So the press was more leading to the Arsenal's, the, the big boys in London, and Man United, and, and especially Liverpool, dominated. Liverpool used to have six or seven, eight players in the first team. Uh, but also then, there was you know 80% English players in the Premiership. Now it's only 29%. Yeah. So to get in was hard. I had to get past Johnson, Mariner, uh, Keegan, Brooklyn, with all these boys were there uh, playing good football. So you had to wait your turn. Okay, well the uh, you had a couple of seasons then when it when it didn't go quite so well for you. Um, but I would say, and in 19, the end of 1980-81, Ron Atkinson leaves. He goes off to Manchester United. As you say, he takes Brian Robson with him. Was there any danger that he would take you with him, with him as well? There was talk. Uh, but uh, it never materialised. I think it was so hard to get Brian out. And to be quite fair, he was a fabulous player. The best uh, pound for pound, the best all-rounder I've played against them with. Uh, and he took uh, Brian Robson and Remy Moses. Uh, I, I think he wanted myself and uh, Derek Statham. But the aggro we had getting Brian Robson out, he went, you know what, <laughs> let, me, let me move on from here. Um, so to see them go was, 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 was really sad to our system. Ronnie Allen came back. He was yep. the manager. Uh, and had a good spell underneath him. Well, uh, although this, the club did very... Uh, you had a very... 81-82, a really weird season in that you finished 17th in the league. Yeah. You scored a ton of goals. Yeah. Um, you, and you reached both cup semi-finals, losing to Spurs in the League Cup semi-final um, and to QPR True in PR. the FA Cup semi-final. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, Clive Allen. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about the semi-final um, against Spurs. Am I right in thinking... 
Didn't Martin Yoll, in those days a skinny man with long black hair, play with you? Yes, he did. And he's hard case, isn't he, Martin? Well, he should put his tackle in. This uh, time tackle was, is it, was, it, was it that semi-final? Did he, did he knock Tony Galvin out and get sent off in that semi-final with a punch? Uh, I can't remember. I think he did. Did he? I can't yeah, remember. I, when I brought this up with Martin, he, he just said to me, I don't really remember that. <laughs> um, but he did. Yeah, one I of the reasons you didn't win that right. semi-final is Martin was sent off for decking. And Tony mm. Galvin was no was no shrinking by no, no, himself. A good player. Good yeah. player. I remember, uh, uh, remember Clive Allen scoring off uh, Alistair Robertson's leg uh, at, at QPR. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you made your England debut in February of 1982. What do you remember that? Well, I remember getting a letter, uh, a letter through the post. Uh, this is sort of like five years after being a professional football. That's what it took you, you know, from 77 to 81, 82. Well, you've gone from electrician to international football uh, in five years as well. You could look at it that way. Yeah, I could do, yeah. yeah. But there were so many good players in front. And I was scoring 15 to 20 goals uh, a year there. Uh, and there were so many good players in front that you had to wait your turn. And it wasn't until, um, I think, Buddy <coughs> Robson gave me my debut. Uh, and it was announced in the papers and all that. A uh, couple of days later, uh, I received a letter through the post. And I opened the letter. And I it's, should make the point it's going to be against Northern Ireland. And yeah. it's maybe impertinent to what you're going to say next. Yeah. Uh, and well, great Pat Jennings was in goal. And I got this letter to put a post. And it basically said, if you put your feet on that Wembley turf, you get one of these through your knees. And it was a bullet came through the post. Yeah. Why, did, why have they sent you that? Well, you know, you're black and you're representing your country. And they don't want you to. Uh, well, I, I stuck it up. We had a laugh about it and get on with, got on with life. I mean, I'm sorry, you, you say you got on with life. I, even at this distance, I must say, I find it incredible that things like that were happening and and that you managed to continue to be a professional footballer. Because, of course, it's designed to intimidate you. And exactly. the last thing you must do is be intimidated. 100%. Because these people are not going to confront you face-to-face, are they? Well, you realise that, 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 that the, the, the chanting and <coughs> all, the, all the issues was confined to the arena. I mean, if you was walking down London or Birmingham or your wife, your kids was getting intimidated at school, in your home, the bricks through your, your car, that would be a totally different thing. But it's confined to the arena, and uh, we had something to fight it with, and that was our talent. And we had a very good side. Brendan was saying, you know, we had a very good side. We can get out there, we can play football, and we played it very well. You um, you didn't get to the World Cup, although you got into the England squad in mm. February of 82. There's a World Cup, of course, in Spain to go to. Um, you got hurt. Yeah, Do you I think you would have gone if you hadn't been hurt? I think I would. Uh, mm. I was um, Midlands player of the year. Uh, I come second to Kevin Keegan in the PFA player of the year that year. And I think one of the, the change was Ronnie Allen came back. He was the first manager I played for who was a striker. Uh, and anybody who knew, knows me says, I'm very big on power, big on speed, low on stamina. And so when he came back in 81, 82, he said, I don't want you chasing full backs to come back for free kicks, to come back from corners. I want you to do all your damage in that half. Do of you the think pitch. that knock is true? That you did you lack stamina? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, just, 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 I, just I'm like, a sprinter. Well, let's talk. Yeah, exactly. Let's just talk, talk very briefly because there, there'll be some teenagers listening to this who won't remember you playing and may not have seen the grainy clips of you doing it. <laughs> I and mean, just to remind people, my memory of you, and tell me if this is wrong, is that you got your goals by um, people would get the ball to you in on the edge of the box or just outside the edge of the box um, at your feet. And you had the speed and the physical power to brush past defenders and you would slap the ball past the goalkeeper, but they might as well have not been there. Yeah. Um, I guess Les Ferdinand used to get goals a bit yeah. like that some, you know, 15 years yeah. later. Yeah. Is that about right? That's about right. Yeah. Uh, You're not showing off. It's just true. I'm telling you. I can, see, I can see it in my mind's eye as clear as day. But that was, I mean, most of your goals are made by other people. 
But every now and then, I should get the ball from the halfway line or 30 yards out, beat one, two, and smack it back. Tell us about the goal of the season you scored. What year yeah, was that? Yeah, same year, 81 82. Yeah, exactly. Goal of the season, uh, playing against <coughs> Norwich. Uh, it was a cup game. Uh, Ali, Ali Rob just flicked it on. I was edge, facing back to goal, on a, on a, heading towards this, this medic end. It flicked onto me. I rolled it on my chest. Uh, Martin O'Neill come to challenge me. I gave him an elbow. Yeah. Went past him, went past Stevie Walsh. O'Neill goes down like a ton of bricks, yeah. <laughs> he later managed me, went past him, and I cracked it from about 25 yards into the top left-hand corner past Chris Woods. I mean, a, a great goal and a great season for you. Were you very sad that you didn't get to go to a World Cup? Very sad. Uh, I was playing well. Confidence was high. Ronnie Allen was, uh, for me personally, was great as a manager. He understood that I never had a lot of stamina. So I used to be explosive in that half of the pitch, not chasing left backs and right backs uh, and, ex and extending energy. So I could use my energy on a, on a purposeful. Scored 24, 25 goals. Uh, and I can remember playing Leeds uh, at home uh, and we sent Leeds down. I think we beat him 2 0 or 2 1. And I pulled my hamstring. Uh, this was about two or three games before the, the season's ended. We sent Leeds down, uh, pulled a hamstring. Uh, we went to uh, Iceland uh, with an England game. England stroke uh, full team, stroke B team. I pulled my hamstring again and um, I was uh, out of it for the England side. And I think Peter Whiff went instead. I mean, after 82, 82-83 was kind of a disaster where you got a terrible facial injury, a yeah. broken cheekbone. I believe you've still got a piece of wire yeah, in your face yeah. now. And then, although you still played and scored goals for West Bromwich Albion, is it fair to say that your your power, your powers or the team's powers, you fell away a bit in the, in the following few years at West Brom? Is that I fair? I think or sometimes you can look back and with a bit more clarity of what happened. Uh, I mean, Brian Robson went. The team uh, had changed from the 78-77 side. Uh, there was good players there, but not top-class players. The team was changing. We weren't playing as well. Johnny Giles had came in. Uh, he was an absolute um, great manager. The lad adored him. The, lad, the players adored him. But I felt, you know, he, he felt I lost, lost a bit of sparkle. I was in my comfort zone. Uh, and I felt he'd lost a bit of passion coming back. And it didn't work out. Uh, he had got an offer from Coventry. Uh, when one, very much uh, one of the pieces of furniture here at TalkSport, one, one Bobby Gould. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What did he, Bobby say to you to make you go to Coventry? I mean, you'd been at West Brom and you were... I mean, you know, latterly you've been voted their great yeah. cult hero of all time. Forget about for Tony two, Brad. For two years I didn't play well. I was... I was uh, well, after I broke my cheekbone, I was playing very well up to then. Uh, and for two years under Ronnie Allen and... Uh, Ron Wiley, yeah. I was playing while I was injured. You know, because they wanted to go out there, the hamstring problems, my form was off. I wasn't playing well. Uh, and they they dragged me out 50%, 60%. And you think, okay, I'll go, I'll go do it. But my form suffered. Which then Let me ask a personal question, because I'm sitting here, I'm, a, I'm four feet away from you, and you're a very, very fit-looking man. Um, were you heavier when you were playing football than you are now? Uh, no. Uh, no. No? Okay. No, you, you, no. you give the impression of having been stockier in, the, in those days. I'm just wondering whether... That was a tight kit. Oh, maybe the Saints <laughs> tight kit. Yeah, that will be it. The, the yeah. kit was no, tight I, those days. And it must no, no, I'm just, just asking no. because uh, cause if, you, cause if you were like you and you are getting injured, I often think footballs are never quite fully fit. They get back to some kind of fitness, then they play again, it then they get hurt again, fit, yeah. and they're yeah. never quite fully fit. Well, you need a high 
pain tolerance when you're a footballer. So Gould comes along, and we all know that he's a he's a live wire. What did he say to you to make you join Coventry City? Well, he, uh, I didn't want to go. I've got to put my hands up. Yeah. I didn't want to go. I had two years left on my contract, and I thought, well, when it got out in the papers, uh, the Sorridges might be going to Coventry. There might be better clubs coming for me. Uh, but when it got out in the papers, no one did. And that hurt me. Here I was, you know, I could have gone to Snetien for £750,000. We nearly went to the World Cup in 82. Sent the forwards, scoring goals for fun. And all of a sudden, for 250 grand, no one wants me. And it's like, wow. So I made a heartfelt decision, not a, not a career decision. I said, right, I'm going to go to Coventry and show you how good I am. Did you feel, before you made the move to Coventry, your career might even slip away from you? Um... <laughs> Not so much at West Brom, but more at Coventry when I went there. Now you, you didn't start. You didn't enjoy it at the start, did you? I went. For, I went for Bobby Gould. Uh, Bobby Gould persuaded me to go over there. Uh, he's an infectious uh, character. He could he could sell a snow to Eskimos, as people say. Yeah, and and he's going to you know get, get filled aside and uh, and and I was uh, I wanted to show people how good I was, uh, but I, I I did say I make a wrong, I made a wrong choice. And the, the sad thing was Bobby Gould got the sack after two months. As can happen, yeah. So you go to a, a football club and everybody's saying, "How did you get to Coventry? What what was it? Why did you go from West Brom and, and England and Coventry?" And that ranked with me. That you know, I possibly made a wrong move. Uh, Bobby Gould had gone. Uh, Don Mackay uh, became the manager, and I just, I, I just thought, well, I'm in the abyss. Uh, Coventry was a poor side. I was a big fish in a small pond. All the focus was on me. All the pressure was on me. I, I wasn't playing well. I wasn't scoring goals, uh, and it was a very, very low point. Very low point in my career. How did you get out of that? Well. <laughs> The catalyst, I've got to say, was John Sillett and uh, George Curtis. An unusual uh, couple, because one had been kind of um, one of the youth team bosses, the other had been the physio or something like that. Uh, he was, and I was a great, uh, great player, George George Curtis for yeah, Fellow yeah. and, and oh, Coventry. No, and, 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 yeah, and, yeah. and a big yeah. man mountain, and and they adored and uh, learned all their management skills from Jimmy Hill uh, in the in the seventies at, at Coventry. And uh, he'd been the club's commercial director. That's right. That's right. He'd been doing that's the, right. that side of that's it. That's right. And they kept, they Don kept... Mackay got the sack. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we had three games to stay up. Uh, 95, 96 season. Yeah. And Johnny. Uh, John, 85, 86. 85, 86, yeah. sorry. Uh, John took over and he basically uh, he basically said, you got, you know, you win two games, going to get a Magaluf, whether we go up or down. Anyway, we won three games. We beat Stoke away, Luton at home, Everton who had won the league, we beat them at home. We stayed up uh, by the skin of our teeth and sent Norwich down. Uh, went to Magaluf for a week. That was great. And it was while in Magaluf, John uh, went to all the players and said, how do you guys want to play? And he got a system of playing that suited everybody. We all bought into the philosophy. We all had an input. And John was like uh, Ron Atkinson, a fantastic motivator, great man manager, uh, knew football, knew how to generate a team spirit. Uh, and, it, and, it, and for another four or five years, it was great. And that four or five years includes what we should talk about for the next five or six minutes, or seven minutes, eight minutes, as long as I can stand it. Um, <laughs> I'm not being funny. It came up the other day. Clive Allen was sat in the chair where you are, of course, who played in the 87 Cup final uh, on the opposition side for Spurs. It still rankles with him. Spurs were such favourites. They, they were. They I were. think the 87 FA Cup final, we'll talk about the run in a second. One thing I want to say about it is that because what followed the following year, Wimbledon against Liverpool, was such an amazing thing, it has 
caused us to overlook that the 1987 FA Cup final was A, a brilliant football match, 3-2 to Coventry, yeah. and B, almost as big an upset because Spurs were a fantastic team at that time. And I, I do feel that the shadow of, of 88 has left 87 rather isolated. I, I, uh, I agree with you. Uh, if anybody just goes and looks at the two, two oh, games, the games. There's, no, there's no comparison. It was a fantastic game. Uh, I was the only um, ex-England international, and Tottenham had 14. I mean, people were saying we're going to lose 3-1, 4-1, uh, everything like that. But uh, we knew we had a strength of character. We knew uh, we could beat Tottenham on our day. Uh, there was no pressure on us. Uh, and Dave Bennett was, was, was phenomenal. And Keith Houchin, who couldn't score in the league, uh, he was scoring for fun uh, in, the, in the cup runs. He scored the memorable goal to diving header. Uh, well, just... you mentioned David Bennett. He had been in the Manchester City team that played in that famous cup final of 82 when Spurs um, got the better of them in arguably one of the greatest yeah. finals ever. Uh, I'm not saying he was out on a revenge mission, but for a player who was a good player, but I, I don't remember being a great player, on that day, he was a great player. Everything he did had meaning. He was everywhere. He scored a goal, and I'm delighted to say we can even talk to him now thanks to the miracle of modern radio. Good evening. Uh, sorry. Hello. Hello, Dave Bennett. Hello, how are you? Ben, very, very good indeed. How are you, how are you Ben? All right. How are you, CR? I'm oh, good, mate. I'm oh, good. <laughs> uh, Dave, I'm, as you can hear, I, as a Spurs fan, I'm still rather smarting quarter of a century <laughs> later about that. But you played, I mean, we'll talk about the run in a minute, but the final itself, you had, a, you had an inspired game. Well, if you're going to have a game, that's the time to do it. You know, the old cup run, not only me, it's a team game. You just start uh, on the day, everything clicked. But uh, as a team, as a unit, we we were very strong and we always had a chance to always thought that we could always beat something if we play our game. What did you what, what, did you still think that when you went behind to Clive Allen's goal? I think he's 49th of the season after two minutes. Well, at the time, if he uh, will remember, we're... Me and him are kicking off, and we're talking to each other about keeping the score down. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Let's keep it down to three or four. Don't be embarrassed by losing the cup final 5 0 or something. <laughs> So I'm at a touch yet, so I'm kicking it off, making sure I get a touch. So that's how we're thinking at the time, because they started like a house on fire. And we just thought, you know, we've got to get back into this game somehow or some way. And of course, uh, five minutes later, uh, Alan's goal was wiped out by one D Bennett. Yeah, at the time, all season, I've been playing up front with Cyril. Me and That's Cyril. Right, yeah. and, uh, as, as, as they say, I was looking after Cyril and making my <laughs> own bumps down the channels. And That's everything my stamina, like that. mate, my stamina. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, fair dues to the big man. The big man used to look after me in more ways than one because we used to play against these few centre-rounds. And the first thing he used to say was, don't get the big man round. Don't get the big man round. Don't upset him. Don't upset yeah. Cyril. So... Uh, all they used to do was take it out on me. So then oh, I used to... Oh. You know, so I used to say to Cyril, as we used to talk in a little bit of pot, so, hey, this guy's having a go at me, and Cyril used to sort him out. <laughs> D- David, just as on a personal level, just let me ask you this. I mean, obviously it is the greatest day in Coventry City's history, and it was a fantastic cup final. Did it mean any more to you because you'd been beaten by Spurs five years earlier? Yes, of course it meant uh, a lot to me in, in the sense that that game in 1881 was a great cup final and uh, as you, a young lad you go in there and you don't take it in as much because uh, it's an occasion where you don't want to let it pass you by. So when it comes to 87, I was making sure that 
weren't going to pass it by. So it meant, yes, a little bit of revenge for all the lads up in Manchester, but also a big part of it was for Coventry City, for the way we played and the lads, uh, how we've gone about it. Well, listen, um, you've got the equaliser. Gary Mavitt scored, scored again for Spurs. Keith Houchen got that fantastic diving header to equalise. And in extra time, an own goal by Gary Mavitt, God help us, means that Coventry had won that final by three goals to two and beaten a Spurs side containing Richard Goff, Gary Mavitt, Clive Allen, Chris Waddle, Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles. I won't go on. Internationals, um, great memories. Uh, you know in football, uh, the sweetest sound is the last whistle because you never know what can happen in football. And you're just waiting for that last whistle. We're all tired. Uh, the old Wembley was quite spongy, so with my stamina, I was absolutely <laughs> wrecked after extra time. Uh, and that final whistle was like, wow. I looked up and it was 3-2. It was, as we were talking earlier, uh, your dream was to, you know, we used to play football. Uh, and there's a kid's called Wembley, knockout competition. We always wanted to play at Wembley. We always, you know, dreamt of, of, of uh, being in the FA Cup final. Actually, actually do it and win uh, was just absolutely amazing. I think one doesn't realise what football means to community, community until you win something, will win something big. The the, the feel good factor in the city, uh, people uh, who supported Coventry, lived in the area. I mean, I, we're still riding on it now, and that is nearly twenty five years later. Still did, riding. The did fact you have that an open top bus parade for the we city? We did. Yeah, there were two hundred people. It's a brilliant thing. Oh, isn't it? it's just two hundred thousand. I hope two hundred thousand. Yeah, two hundred thousand people uh, in, in 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 Coventry. They're so proud of the city. The first thing they've won in one hundred and four years of history is just amazing. How you know you can give so much joy to so many people. I take it the drinking culture was still slap bang in English football. I take it the celebrations were pretty wild as well. Oh, very much. We went to Magaluf after that for a week and uh, had to come back for a rest. <laughs> well, it was a great day, and I'm glad that it, it, despite the, the the Tottenham angle, I'm very glad to rem- let people remember it because I believe that's a cup final. That's as I say. It's been slightly lost to history because of what happened the following yeah. year. Did you feel that your kind of return from the, the, I wouldn't call it a wilderness, but the dark place you got yourself into it was yeah, complete? definitely. I was playing good football. I was consistent. Uh, in those dark days, you had to dig into your character. And I tell a lot of young players, it's not just about your actual talent, your ability. You had to dig in your character or your resolve or your self-belief. Uh, that was severely tested in those days, but uh, through John and George and the boys and the team at Coventry, got back a bit of self-respect from a playing point of view. Uh, and after that, I was very, very consistent. And that's what you need as a footballer. You need a high level of consistency week in, week out. And I managed to get that. Yeah, and I think you were playing some excellent football then, well, although Coventry didn't get to compete in the European Cup Winners' Cup because of the ban. That's right. Which yeah. is a shame for yeah, everybody concerned. Yeah, it would have been great for Coventry getting there into Europe. And in October 87, um, you made your final of five England appearances. Um, th- those were days when England could beat Turkey 8-0. So <laughs> those days are not, not with us anymore. That's right. No, no, absolutely. Um, you came on and uh, when it was 6-0. And um, I was going to say, well, you talked about the great players that were up against you to get into the England team. Still in all, I suspect that um, given what you achieved in the game, you might be disappointed with only getting five England caps. Definitely. But, uh, you know, we look back and look at the dynamics. Uh, if my career was again, I probably would... Maybe should have left West Brom in 81, 82. Maybe gone on to um, Pastors New, perhaps. Uh, on Albion was on the way down because uh, Brian Robson had gone, Big Ron had gone. Uh, Albion was on a slippery slide. I had a very good year. From a career point of view, mm. on reflection, I should have left then in 81, 82. 
and gone on to, uh, if not a bigger club, a bigger club. Because I was, yeah, yeah I was, I was a, uh, I was Midlands Player of the Year, won the goal this season. I came second, second to Kevin Keegan in, in the, the Players Player of the Year. Yeah. So I could have had a choice of clubs, but decided to stay. And um, but that was a juncture in my career. Looking back and in reflection. Should have left West Brom then. Okay. You're, you're at Coventry City, um, and we've described that triumph um, in the FA Cup. But of course, it also, the FA Cup, because that's what the competition does, brings yeah. you one of the most remarkable results in the entire history of the competition. I remember the game very clearly and with no sense of vengeance. Because um, 18 months after that Cup final, at the start of the 89-90 FA Cup, 7th of January 1989, mm. um, uh, Sutton United, a 2-1 defeat for top-level Coventry City. Tell us about the game. Painful, painful times. I mean, uh, we've just gone through uh, Coventry winning you the were Cup. Third. Was... You were third in the first division, incidentally. Uh, it, it was... Uh, oh, thanks. It's a fact. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just looking at the league table in front of me. <laughs> but it was painful. I mean, winning the Cup two but years you, before you, that, it's, it's... you had come out of non-league football. Exactly. You'd played come, against Sutton You'd come out of non-league football... You, you, I guess you must have known you should beat those, but they are still blokes who can play. Yeah, but we, it was one of those games that we just didn't, t- didn't turn up. We didn't play play well. Uh, Arkham had scored a couple of goals. They had about three chances. Uh, they scored two goals. We hit the bar. I put around a post. We had 15, 15 16, 20 chances, and the pitch was bobbly. It was classic, classic Dave and Goliath situation. And we lost two one. They got uh, they got a it, kind of mad world, world sort of mad scientist set piece goal as well, didn't they? Oh, it just we just didn't happen for us in a day. And I can remember the feeling uh, walking in the dressing room. John Philip, what can he say? Can't say nothing to you. Can't bring you any lower because we got a game Saturday. And so we just. Well, when, it, when, when the, it was when, deadly when, quiet. When the pro, yeah, I mean, is there anger? Is there sadness? What what's the feeling like in the dressing room after well, that? You, it, it only just, happens about once every shock, three years. Shock. It's shock. You just think, no, it, this can't happen. Why did it happen? Uh, there's no reason for it. You just can't. You probably need a PhD to to, to analyse what happened, and it's just one. It's what, sport. It's sport. What's the form? You, 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 do you go to the to the Sutton dressing room and say, "Well done, guys," or do you just get your head under no, a blanket and get no, yourself just, onto the coach? Just, yeah, just walk with walk away with your team with your toes between your legs. I mean, they're celebrating for fun. You can see the dressing room, you know, which is. Oh, you could hear it too. Yeah. Hear the dressing room. You can hear it. Yeah, we've done them. Yeah, yeah. Champagne is cocking. The boys are buzzing. <laughs> And you think, oh my lord! But I tell you, the worst moment for me was well, you get back home and all of a sudden is waking up Sunday morning. Papers. Oh, no! It's just you think it's a dream. You wake up and it hits you. Sunday morning, you've lost two one to Sutton, and the, all that feeling comes out. I, I think I must have been drunk for three days just trying to get out of my system. It was so painful. Do you remember how you got on that next league game? No, no, I can't. <laughs> I, it, and, I, and it's one of those things that every time you, uh, and that's, that's life, it's about balance, isn't it? You, you get a high, they get the highs of winning against uh, Tottenham and you get the low uh, of losing at uh, Sutton, Sutton United. Well, if you're ever short of a drink these days, you can always just <laughs> go down to the town of Sutton and probably buy you one. Cyril. Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, In 1990, sorry, you're going to say? Oh, but funnily enough, they went to Norwich the following uh, round and got battered eight nil. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's the more that's the more predictable result, isn't it? Yeah, one hundred percent. In nineteen ninety, um, sometime after that, uh, Coventry doing okay. They finished seventh and dropping down the league over over the in the early part of the nineteen nineties. Terry Butcher comes to be manager, and um, I think you did you 
how did you get? I mean, you must be in and around England squads with him. Do you know Terry? Yeah, I've known Terry from um, uh, the England squad. Didn't know him no. very, very well. I think he was playing up in Rangers in Scotland. Sure. Um, John Philly got the sack, and Terry became manager. And he wanted to change things around. I think he wanted some younger legs. Uh, he got rid of um, Brian Kilcline, uh a few older people, uh, Trevor Peak later on. Uh, and I was thirty. We could do a whole two hours on Brian Kilcline. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. What a great character. And I was 33 at the time. I was playing fairly well. And I thought he wanted to freshen up the squad. He brought in Mick Mills and Brian Eastick as coaches. He wanted to fresh, freshen up the squads. We were in our 30s. Uh, and he bought Robert Rosario for £600,000. That didn't turn out too well, did oh, it, to well, replace you? I mean, no disrespect. You know, <laughs> I'm not, not, not singing me praises, but Robert Rosario. He's mm. a, you could say he was a he big guy. Ten, he scored 10 goals in 10 years. No, his career before he went to Coventry was 600 grand. Uh, But I think, you know, managers live live or die by by their decision-making. He let me go. I should make the point, he got 10 goals in 10 years as a centre-forward. As a centre-forward, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're not impressed with that, I can tell. I'm not, no. But, I mean, (laughs) end of day, managers made a decision. I see Robert Rosario, you know, now, and he's he's fine. He's not not his position. He he wants to make make a living, isn't he? But Terry Butcher, if he thinks that, uh, you know... (laughs) Rob Rosario is better than me at 33 at £600,000 it's his decision what, you, what, what I mean what did you make you mean you had to move on again and I very, did and very lucky really because Ron Atkinson by this time was manager of Aston Villa how can you go from Coventry to Aston Villa so yeah. you know people people have different values don't they uh, and they see different players in fact the whole Coventry fans for the last two months of the season were saying Cyril must stay. The whole fans were saying, but you know, he had to do a job to do. Uh, he, I, I went, and uh, Ron Atkinson went back, went to the Villa, uh, and I was his first buy on a free at thirty-three. And you did very well. You great, great two years. Yeah, yeah. Great two years there. Played with some magnificent players: uh, Dwight York, uh, Paul McGrath, uh, Gary Parker, Ray Houghton. Uh, Bojnic, uh, Clive, uh, Teal. Characters too. Oh, uh, Kevin Richardson, winners. Uh, the first year, 91-92, I uh, played with Yorkie up front. We brought Daley Atkinson, another gifted player. Beast uh, of a man as well. Yeah. Uh, we come seventh in the league. Uh, Ron tweaked it again. 92-93 was the first year of the, of, uh, the Premier League. Uh, we come second um, to Man United. Absolutely. I never played a lot because I had a, an ankle injury, but Dean Saunders was there up front with Dalian and Big Ron. That was a hell of a side. Great, great you side. You enjoyed Aston oh, Villa? I mean, we had uh, talented players. I mean, as I said before, the, the team spirit at Coventry was the best in my football career. The two great teams were West Brom and the Villa side in terms of pure talent. Was was fantastic, fantastic. I mean, obviously, by this stage, you're you're a legend in the middle, and so you know, the time comes to leave Villa. You're now in your mid thirties, thirty-five. Everybody still wants to give you a go, and you go to the last of the big teams. With all respect <laughs> to Birmingham in the, in the West Midlands. Oh, there's still and time. Little girl, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Still yeah, time, yeah. Well, I, I could have gone over to. Well, uh, well, I think. Go, go, let me get this right. Graham Turner was in charge when you yeah. went, but Graham Taylor very quickly came. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could have gone out to. Um, I could have joined David Pleat down at Luton. And uh, uh, and uh, John Rudge at Port Vale wanted me. Uh, could even gone out to to uh, to Cyprus to Limassol. Yeah, but uh, you must you must know where Molyneux is, must <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's easy to find. But you know, coming from West Brom, it's the arch enemy, Wolves. But uh, it was another chance to stay at home with the family. Um, and uh, I, I liked um, what uh, 
uh, Graham Turner said. Uh, we had two good players there in Steve Ball, great player. Yeah, great player. And uh, and David Kelly. Uh, I didn't play a lot of games, but it was close. Uh, good little side. Had some great players there and uh, stayed there for a year. I mean, I always think, and we'll talk about it in the next part, I, I think players were far too quick to retire in those days. You don't realise, I guess, how long the road of life, I mean, no matter how busy you are, is lying ahead of you when you give up playing football. I'm glad to see you kept going. You got a call from a very famous football person, the commentator Alan Parry, trying to make a, a meeting for you with a, a very, very young manager. We heard about him earlier in the piece when you knocked him over to score your goal <laughs> against Norwich. Um, then the still very, very young Martin O'Neill, and he persuaded you to go... I think it was his first management job at Wickham Wanderers, wasn't it? I think it was Grantham before that. Was he? went to Wickham. But I'll just go digress a little mm. bit. When I left Wolves, it was one of the most painful times because you're waiting for the phone to ring. And the phone don't ring. The phone don't ring. I had. You two... hadn't thought of retiring. You just wanted to play I wanted to play you? football, yeah. 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 I was um, 36. I yeah. wanted to play. I had two calls. Uh, one was from Kenny Swain at Wigan. All he wanted to, for me to come up there for three months. Because don't forget, you're 36. People thinking if you've still got the legs, that sure, kind of stuff. Sure, sure. And um, Liam Brady was at Brighton. He wanted me to come down there just for three months. I went, no, you know, it's, it's a bit of pride. You know, you, you mm -hmm. want me, I want mm -hmm. a year. And he said, I couldn't offer that. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Everybody's doing pre-season. I end up doing pre-season with my brother at South End and doing some stuff myself. And a week before the season starts, I get a phone call from Alan Parry. He says, sir, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. He says, no, I've had a couple of offers. There's nothing. He, um, and then the following day, he said, you come Wickham, Martin O'Neill down there. The following day, I met Martin O'Neill at uh, Warwick, Hilton uh, Hotel Warwick. Sat down for seven minutes, done a contract, and signed for a year at Wickham Wanderers. And, all right, so you're playing in the lower leagues now. How did you enjoy that? Great fun. Martin O'Neill, what a... Fantastic motivator. I mean, no wonder he's gone on to do fantastic things with, with Norwich and Celtic uh, and Villa because he's a great motivator. Um, he's old school in the sense that, you know, he gets players, he can build a good side and gets the players to do their maximum. And it was a tremendous, great year. Um, uh, we and had a very good side there. As you've seen with his teams, I mean, I'm thinking particularly about the Leicester team, which Emil Heskey led. Um, so, so well he likes a big strong centre forward doesn't he yeah he does because it gives you an option someone yeah. someone could do it on the pitch but then or, or on the ground but then if the ball needed a bit longer you can hold the ball up flick it on have that power up front so it gives you an option if you've only got small small lads up there you can only keep it on the ground and you haven't got that uh, that aerial ability so it was great uh, with, with Martin O'Neill down there with some excellent players Stevie Brown and uh, uh, Big Terry uh, it was excellent. I mean, and you, you got your share of goals again. You got you got you got into double figures at, down at Wickham. I did. Uh, it was great that year. Uh, played some real good players, and I managed to get Jason Roberts, who's just left Chelsea. I got him in as an apprentice. I mean, you should make the point again. Just, those who didn't join us an hour ago, that uh, he is your your sister Nilla. Is that sister, yeah, yeah, my yeah, eldest sister Nilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's Jason is is your is your uh, you're taking your your nephew under under your wing. Yeah, I took him into 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 Wickham with me, but uh, it didn't work out for him there. But very similar kind of player in some ways, perhaps n not with the the, the quite the. the rocket burner pace that you had once you got the ball at your feet no, but, uh, uh, is that fair J or unfair? J no, Jason was a winger Yeah, Jason was always brought up as a winger all his football life's a winger he only changed to an out, out and out forward and went, went non-league to Hayes and then that's when he's made, made his name as an out and out forward 
Um, so you had your year with Martin O'Neill, and you still, we couldn't get rid of you. You still wouldn't go. <laughs> um, you moved to Chester City um, to play. I mean, what did you know? I mean, did you know anything about nothing, Chester City? Nothing. I th- uh, Kevin Radcliffe tried to. Before Wales, yeah. and, and of course, a great Everton captain in his yeah, time. I, I think he tried to get me before that, and I went to, went to Wickham. Well, let's find out. Let's find out why he did. Here is the former Everton and Wales skipper, legend, of course, in that great Everton side of the mid eighties, Kevin Ratcliffe. Hello, Kevin. Hi, lads. How are you? Kev- Hi, Kevin. Kevin. How are you doing, Paul? All right. I'm all right, mate. Yeah, you. Good, thanks. Yeah, Kevin. I, I mean, I watched you play. You were a, a sensible and direct man, and uh, and all the rest of it. What made you want to sign a thirty-seven-year-old uh, <laughs> centre forward? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I had a young lad at the time. Uh, a lad called John Murphy. He was a centre forward, and he's an uh, uh, old-fashioned, typical type of centre forward. You know, big lad, good touch, and everything. But I, I wanted somebody really to teach him the ropes, and. Uh, Cyril fitted the bill, and he, actually Cyril was my first signer as a manager. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's important that when you're a manager, you know, your first signing that sets your stall. And Cyril come in. Um, I think we had a little bit of an agreement that he did a couple of days a week and uh, <laughs> that's trained right, yeah. at home. Yeah, that's right. Which uh, you know, it suited both parts really. And uh, you know, I, I also had a little bit of an agreement that I'd take him off 15 minutes ago so he could get a great round of applause, and he did. <laughs> Kevin, <laughs> that was out my stamina. Though. Kevin, before you were his manager, what do you remember? I mean, you must have come directly head to head with him other, yeah. as, as as footballers. What do you remember about Cyril the player? Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, very, very difficult to, to sort of uh, muscle him out of the out of the game. Um, you know, you, you have to sort of wait for mistakes really off Cyril. Um, in his younger days, he had a little bit of pace as well. You know, um, <laughs> a little bit, Kevin, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, at thirty-seven, you do lose a bit as well. You know, absolutely. But the, the thing with Cyril at thirty-seven, you know, he, he still had a body of a twenty-five-year-old. You know, is uh, I tell you, you know, he's he, not doing too bad now. If I'm absolutely no, frank with you. I know. I know he's, uh, you know, he looked after himself, and I think, like you say, you know that, you know, coming up to to Chester, and like I say, I think he trained Monday and Thursdays and Fridays, and you know, he did us a treat, and I, I think himself as well. That you know, he's. Uh, he did really well for us and, you know, like I say, taking him off towards the end of the game really to give this other lad a little bit of experience. But, mm. you know, the applause that he used to get coming off because, you know, he still had that little bit of a drive in him that he, you know, he wanted to, to do well and, and be successful and uh, as, as he could be at Chester. And he did really well for us. Did you enjoy it, Cyril? Very much so. In fact, uh, uh... Kevin offered me another year, but I had a, an injury, and uh, I packed in after that, doing 19 years. But it was great fun. Uh, I think it was down a rabbit hole, wasn't it? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I go around, che- no, go around Chester races on pre-season. It was that's what it was. You're no, blaming I, I you now, Kevin. Park, wasn't it? It was a park, and I, I was going round before training, filling it in with sand, and I missed one, and you fell down it. Um, I remember that, you know, you, you did your ankle or something, That's right. wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah and it was uh, part and parcel of lower league football, really going around the pitch with a uh, <laughs> with a with a cone full of sands and filling the, the holes in before you train. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin, I, just a final question for you. I mean, obviously, the modern game has plenty to offer. The TV uh, the TV audiences proved that. The full grounds proved that. Um, but we don't see many of the Cyril Regis type now in the game. A big, um, pacey striker. Playing with often with a partner, it, it, it's a it's a dying art in the game, isn't it? Well, you know what one of the reasons is is there's no contact. Yeah. You know the the, the need for strikers like that. The streak, strikers are actually moulded into a different type of striker now. You know there is strikers like that, but they're actually moulded a different way because the contact has been taken away from it. You know, in in our day when we played, there, there was there was full contact. Mm. Um, 
I think it takes away a little bit of a game. Yeah, now, I agree. The way it the game does, is, yeah. it, t- it takes a hell of a lot away from the game, the game that I played. And, you know, I still see better games now, I feel, when there is contact in the game. And you usually get them when you're watching lower league teams, you know, from, from the Premiership. Perfectly right. Know, take away the Premiership away. And after that, you say that. And I think the referees are not scrutinised as much. And, uh, you know, they, they let things go a little well, bit. They also, they also, the they also think because, because of the, um, the lack of contact now that's allowed or appeared to be allowed at the very top level, that's one of the things, Kevin, ironically, and Cyril, is encouraging people to dive and cheat. Because, yeah. they, because yeah. they know that any contact, like they can get something out of the game. Whereas before, the referee might say, get up and get on with it. Yeah. It was an art. Uh, tackling was an art. But now it's a, it's a fading art. Uh, with, with television and scrutiny and playback, you get one thing wrong. Uh, with the, the, the amount of money in the game, one decision could go wrong for you and uh, you, could, you could be out. Well, could be I, I, think, I think as well said, a lot of people get injured in tackles these days because they don't know how to tackle. Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they don't they're tackle these days. They're not brought up in no. training. To, to actually go out there and tackle. I agreed. Well, it's, it's, uh, one, it's one of the things that I think that they will need to reassess as the years go by. People won't pay to watch an exhibition. Listen, thank you very much, Kevin Ratcliffe, uh, the man okay, who gave, who gave tonight's guest, the, uh, the great Cyril Regis, his last go as a player. And so you come up to retirement. Your, your feelings about retiring from the game after two decades? Uh, I think at that time, you, you know that your body's had enough. Uh, this is uh, playing football for, for, for 19 years. Um, umpteen 13 operations uh, physically it was challenging you know rolling out of bed Sunday morning after a game uh, Kevin looked after me great I used to play on a Saturday have Sunday Monday off train or play on a Tuesday have Wednesday Thursday off do a little bit down, in, down, down at home in Birmingham come up on a Friday play five side play Saturday that was my routine and he took me off for 15 minutes but even after that uh, because it was quite physical, I mean, the following day, Sunday morning, your body's broken. You had to motivate yourself so much, uh, you know, going to Scumfoot away in front of five, six hundred people. Uh, I think there were more than five or six hundred, well, with all due respect well, yeah, yeah. to Scunthorpe. Uh, and the whole thing had changed. Uh, I remember going to Chester, uh, I had, had, my, had my kit, and for years, everything was done for you. Yeah. All of a sudden, you had to bring your kit home, you had to bring your towel home, watch your own kit, watch your own boots. It was like, okay, right, <laughs> that's the way it is. But I still love playing football. We had a very good side. Uh, Kevin liked to play some good football, and it was great fun. Uh, and Having come in, into the game late, you wanted to eke every exactly. Bit of it. If you've worked on a building site, you can see what a privileged position you are to be. And you know, to be a footballer. There, there, there is nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with uh, the modern player, especially coming through the academy and that kind of stuff. But they just don't have the context. They don't have that perspective of the other side of life. And you can see sometimes when they come out of the bubble, which is football, they really struggle They're to, to work. They? Yeah, it's, it's a different world out there. But for me, coming from uh, the building site, knowing what, in, in, in no present terms, real work's about um, five, six, ten hours a day in a building site, cold weather, hot weather, being told what to do, and then playing football for, for 19 years, having that contrast you know that that love for football. You know you want to eke every bit out of it because you know you're going back to the the real world. And so you retire. Talk to me about um, uh, one of the parallel things to your football career. At some stage, you've become a born again Christian. I'm not even sure what that means in the modern world, to be honest, um, uh, Cyril. Um, what do you understand it to mean, and, and how did you come to that uh, pathway in well, life? Well, I think as a footballer, you have uh, well-known football. You have two kind of lives. You have a private life and a public life. And obviously, your public life, everybody knows about. Your private life is totally different. Uh, in our days, as a footballer, it was 
uh, play hard, uh, work hard, play harder. So there's a lot of drinking, a lot of late nights and a lot of women. That kind of behavior has a disaster effect on your relationship. Married man with two kids has a disaster effect. Uh, I wanted to change my life for a long, long time, but couldn't. Uh, it was you got having, divorced from your wife, Beverly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Had, a, had a really, really, uh, you know, difficult uh, private life. Uh, you can, as you can imagine, coming home with all sorts of stuff flying around. Uh, the trust, the faith, the communications uh, in a marriage which is needed to sustain a marriage that, that was blown apart. Uh, but a real catalyst of me changing uh, as well as that was my best friend, Laurie Cunlan. He'd gone to Madrid, he's in Madrid and he had a career. He died in a car crash in yeah. 1988. A very uh, young man. A young man. Uh, two years before the car crash, me and Laurie was uh, drinking uh, in, in Spain. And we similarly had a car crash two years before he died where the, the car hit the barrier after a night out, skidding his roof, and we both came out alive. We thought, mm, great, we were very lucky. But when Laurie Cunningham died, um, it really rocked me. He's my best mate. He's died in a car crash. But what hit me like a sledgehammer, that he left everything behind. Money, cars, um, your fame, everything that the world says, you know, you are successful. The trappings, yeah. The trappings. And I thought, well, what's life all about? And to cut a long story short, I was brought up a Catholic. I started to go back to church. And a guy called Brian, Brian Hewitt, came over to my house. We sat down and he told me how much God loved me. Uh, uh, we, I made a small... Uh, prayer. Uh, sorry, Brian said, but, but, do you, oh, "Was you a Christian?" I said, "No, I'm not a Christian." So I said, "Do you fancy somebody come around your house?" Uh, so a lad called Colin Dake ran my house. We spoke for about five hours. We told much God loves me. So he told me how much uh, God has forgiven me my sin. Uh, I made a small prayer that day for to, to uh, for God to come into my life. And nothing happened that day. But uh, four days later, I'm, I'm reading a little book and. As I'm reading this little book by Michael Green, I get this enormous sense of peace come over me. This peace which I, I cannot describe. And as at that peace, I just sensed that Jesus Christ was in my room. I just knew that Jesus Christ was in my room. And for that day onwards, that, that, that reality that Jesus is real, uh, from that day onwards, I uh, lived my life as a born-again Christian. Got baptized. Uh, it didn't save my marriage, but... My mindset had changed, my behaviour had changed, and uh, got a great relationship with my children and my ex-wife Beverly now, and uh, things things are great. And on a personal level, you have remarried, and yep. and it's with all good. Julia, well, what wonderful lady. Yeah, it's great. Three grandkids as well. Well, I'm, finally, I'm struggling <laughs> to think of Cyril Regis, the grandfather, but that's just because uh, I still see you knocking Spurs defenders left, right, and centre on your way on your way to goal. Uh, Cyril, um, you hung up, hung up your playing boots in, in 1996, the following year, returned to West Bromwich Albion, mm. um, your spiritual home, if you like, as reserve team coach, alongside your former Albion mate, John Truick. Um, how did it feel to go back to West Brom? That was great. Uh, it was great to got, get back. Uh, I had done my coaching badges while I was at Wolves. I was a fully qualified A-licensed coach. Uh, I went for a couple of jobs uh, uh, as a manager. I went back to Wickham, actually, uh, when... Um, uh, when, when just before uh, John Gregory got the job, uh, they kind of half offered me a, a youth team coach job, but never materialised. And West Brom came in and. Sorry to stop you there. Let me ask you bluntly the Rooney rule, all that stuff, American football, yeah. um, as it happens this year, it's two white men who have coached the teams to the Super Bowl that we're going to see in mm -hmm. a couple of weeks' time. Um, 
Do you think that there is a glass ceiling for ex-black players who want to be managers in this country to do it with the colour of the skin? I think so, yeah. I think this Statistically, th- it's, 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 it's absolutely provable. It, it, it is, and I think it just mirrors society. I mean, you go to anybody in, the, in a bank or in a job or, or big industry or big companies, they'll tell you the same thing. The NHS, the housing, they'll tell you the same thing. The, the same thing. There is a glass ceiling when it comes to going into management. What's this about? Because... There isn't that obviously that problem in getting players of colour into football teams, but that's well, you, a physical you, you, thing, though. It's measurable, well, I guess, is it? Well, well, you you're an Indian in parlance. You know, when you're a manager, you're a chief. You're the face of the company. You're telling people what to do. You're dealing with with uh, millions of pounds, and you got to break stereotypes that you know they can play football, but oh, black people can't manage. You know that kind of stuff. And do you want a black man or a black person being the face of your company? If you're a big global company, so and so a lot of these people who um, who, who are making those decisions on the board, what experience they have, have they got any prejudices? Who knows? But you know, like the police, like different institutions, you can't pin it down. It's like institutionalized racism. It's you can't pin it down. Yeah. yeah. Well, you look at football clubs. You know, when you go to football clubs, is there anybody in administration? Don't see it. Black, don't see black people in okay, administration. Okay. Well, well, you and your generation. Broke uh, a from tab- a playing uh, point of view. Yes, you did. From a playing point it, of view. Is it? Can it be that we can break? Because exactly the same thing happened in America. American football, in my opinion, has always been thirty years ahead of uh, the other yeah. sports in the world. And we had exactly the same arguments in America. And then people like Art Shell became uh, coaches. And recently, we saw a, a Super Bowl with two black coaches. And that issue is now dead and buried. And it, can we do it in this country? I think, yeah, but they've had uh, had help with the Rooney Rule. I mm-hmm. think it's a great rule in terms. It doesn't what it says that it's only an interview. But yes. I think in that interview, I think, you know what? I didn't see him like that. He's the one. And it gives you that, that confidence that, uh, or that, 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 that insight, rather than say, well, we're not gonna get, not give, not give him an interview. The fact you can have an interview with, with two or three black guys and a whole range of people, that guy, that one black guy might just think, you know what? He's the right one for us. But if you don't even interview him, you haven't got a chance. Well, you don't at all. get to know most people anyway, so sure. All and right. plus, it's always, I, I think with someone like uh, Chris Hutton doing a fantastic job, fantastic job because not only is he a black manager, he's a successful black manager, and that's important. I think uh, back in the seventies, uh, if it was just players uh, and not successful players with a great side, it might have a different connotation, which then inspires other people. You, like, you asked me the question back then. Uh, you know, was we what did we realize what we was doing? The fact is, we couldn't see it because the likes of Dwight York and all the second generation was inspired by watching us totally. uh, play football. So therefore, the more black managers we see, the more it inspires more. I didn't mean to come back to the race issue, but it just occurred to me about the managers. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ca- carry on with it now because in recent months we've had the Luis Suarez thing with with, with Evra and uh, John Terry, um, and 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 those things happened, and your your nephew, Jason Roberts, was at the very front of saying, we know, I mean, I think Jason's attitude is, we know what's been done, there's more to be done, let's do it. I'm not having it that this is enough. And and also we've seen some of it come back on the terraces. Did he talk to you about all of this, sir? Does yeah, he talk we, to you about we all this? Yeah, speak, and I, I think... Well, he's, uh, you're his agent, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. And, so I, guess, and I guess, I hope, you're, I hope you're also his uncle. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we speak about things, and I think you just can't have this slowness and um, and uh, the indifference with, with when issues happen, John Terry, why is it taking a year to sort out? Well, that, that 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 meant that that was a 
uh, uh, I hate to use the word attack cancer, but it was, a, it, was a, it was something sort of rotting away in English football for a whole year. Sure, sure. And we had a whole Suarez situation where Liverpool I mean, misjudged the situation at all by backing Suarez and, and the whole situation. Uh, yes, their blatter saying, you know, just shake hands and walk away with things is one of those things. Uh, you have FIFA. Uh, any time racing comes up, somebody gets a paltry thirty thousand euro fine. It sends out the message. It's not serious. Well, we had FIFA this week saying that uh, Kevin Prince Boateng should not have done what he did um, at, the, at the game with, with Pro Patria. I mean, I understand why they, they think. I can see the complications of teams walking off the pitch, but at least they need to support him personally. One hundred percent. I mean, if uh, if the authorities that be uh, if the sanctions ain't strong enough. Well, the fans are going to say, well, well the game's 2-0 on. Uh, we're still going to shut race abuse and players are going to walk off. But if they know the sanctions is just uh, is going to be, you know, at, at, at that competition or the next five games uh, is behind closed doors, they'll think uh, differently about it. But when the fine is 20,000 euros in a multi-million pound company, it doesn't give it the seriousness. And Jason uh, and uh, all, all the, the former black players now, they're saying, you know, it's enough's enough. You know, we've had this slow process, get it sorted. We've had this for a long, long time, get it sorted. We're, yeah. not, we're, not, we're not having that slow process. You know, we've been there 30 years. It's a slow process. No one's taking it seriously enough. And, you know, we're making this stand. And good luck, and good, good for them. Yeah, but, I mean, Jason did put his head very much above the parapet there. And plenty of people had a shot at it. Well, you know, if you, if you, if you have the conviction that things are right uh, and things, uh, life is about justice, uh, fair play, uh, and fighting against these sort of evil, and rightly so. I'm very proud of him. Good. Absolutely spot on. Um, people are very proud of you. I mean, uh, as well, in 2004, you were voted by West Bromwich Albion's all-time cult hero. What did that feel like? <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, t- Tony Brown is, is, is t- top See, man. See, I would have thought Tony Brown, but uh, we're yeah, a, we're a, perhaps man. younger people remember you, you a bit but better. I think, I think for me, <laughs> looking back, it epitomises... You know uh, that Roy the Rovers feeling, young kid plucked off the building site, playing on a Sunday morning, and a lot of, of of fans could probably identify with that and wish that happened to them. You know, playing for the dog and duck on a Sunday, and you know their local club seeing them play, come and play for us, and they scoring goals at Wembley. And so I just epitomise that story. You do indeed, indeed you do. I mean, there's so many other things I want to talk about, but let me just ask you about being an agent. How long have you been an agent, Cyril? Uh, about 13, 14 years. Love yeah. it. Yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, you love football. Uh, I mean, they got a terrible rap, don't they? In, 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 oh, in, 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 outside of the you know, in, among fans like me, Let's, I, I won't hide it. In media as well, they've got a terrible reputation. Well, the bottom line is, I. Always say in every profession there is 10% of people who are wrong and same as our profession same as any drinking industry music industry not, not ev- broadcasting ev- industry no way honestly they're wrong and the same as our business and I think they always fo- focus on the fact that you know they're earning big money in terms of wages in terms of fees but one of the one of the, the saddest part of uh, the hardest part of my job is when 16, 17, 18 year olds who's been in the football club for 10 years get released that is painful when they've had their dreams shattered and uh, it's a conveyor belt of you know if you're not good enough out you go it's brutal isn't it it's brutal and it's brutal it's, those teenage kids I mean later on professional footballers can look after fine. themselves I understand you know, when, if you've got two Premier League contracts you're made for life and after that it's down to you sure. to make the best of your talent but there are kids being chucked out of you know but no one talks clubs. about that when you're 16 you've been, a, you've been in, a, in an academy for 5, 6, 10 years at 16 if they are not good enough you're out what do you do what do you say to kids who, who, who well, you're the agent of who don't make it 
what one you got to encourage them listen it's not over you got to tell them stories about I come from non-league Jason Roberts Stuart Pearce it doesn't matter keep going you got to lift them up uh, their their morale their self-esteem is down they you know n- nothing happens you got to go and find them football clubs encourage them um, all those things to get back on the ladder because if you ever got an agent that your mum and dad the mum and dad haven't got the contacts their whereabouts who to speak to uh, and it's very challenging, very challenging. And the fact, and the fact is, the the career path is not academy under sixteens, under eighteens, first team. That's that's not how it works. Most of the time, a player has to leave between eighteen, nineteen, twenty, go two or three levels down, find a club, and then work his way back in again. And that's the way it is. Yeah. And that, and being an ex player, uh, one one of the things I love about the game is mentoring young players and saying, listen. You, know, you might have these road tinted glasses of what a professional football is like, but this is how it is. I, I'm, I've only got about 90 seconds left, and I want to talk about the future, but, but give me 30 seconds on the fate of, not of, of West Bromwich Albion, who are doing so well, but of Coventry City, who you, you've done so well with, and now... It's painful. It's I, mean, I, painful know, I know Coventry. they turned the form around a little bit right now, but the club is in a terrible place. Well, financially, it's an absolute mess. Uh, and this is what you see for, uh, where when you have bad financial man- man- management. The club has got to be the fulcrum of the city, the community. Uh, whoever looks after the club's got to think long-term ahead. I mean, Coventry went down with £60 million worth of debt. They sold Highfield Road. You know, there's no assets. The assets are on your players. The players I mean, it are seems worth to me it's literally pounds. unmanageable it's just, with that kind of debt on it. It's literally unmanageable. I don't know, I don't know where they go. It is it's absolute uh, nightmare that because of misfinancial mis- management, when you think you say about West Brom, it's run financially right. Yeah, but Coventry, Jeremy Peace is a very, a very part, smart very guy smart and he's not going to sell the This club. is our budget. Yeah. This is our budget. This is our parade. We're not going to go borrow 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million pounds to, to, to get success. We operate within those limits. Yeah, because I'm not sure now when I see Coventry and I see Portsmouth. It's painful. Both painful. of them, FA Cup winners in my, yeah. in my memory, yeah. I worry that they're not blips they might be the forerunners of what's going to happen to a lot of clubs and we shall see which takes us to the future Cyril Um, it's been an absolute joy listening to you talking uh, and you're right it's a fairy tale in many many ways not all of it but much of it you know Mm. boy from the building sites playing for England scoring goals of the season um, being a top top player and all the rest of it. Um, what do you think? Where do the road will take you? And what do you hope? That, where do you hope that road will take you? Well, I'm enjoying my my job as a uh, a football agent. I work for a company called Stella. Uh, Jonathan Barnett, and David Manassi, fantastic people to work with. Uh, I really enjoy mentoring young players, uh, seeing them uh, fulfil their potential as a footballer. For one side, uh, two, uh, uh, doing the work I do with Water Aid, the Jason Roberts Foundation, yes, absolutely, and Christians in Sport. And three, from uh, from a Christian's perspective, uh, telling people about the love of God. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports, My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 